but it's my extreme great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Ushali McFarling. Ushali McFarling is an award-winning science journalist. Her reporting on the diseased state of the world's oceans earned her both a Pulitzer Prize for Explanatory Reporting and the Carl Sagan Award for Public Understanding of Science. She regularly contributes opinion pieces to the Los Angeles Times and is a senior editor and writer at The Huntington. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Ushali McFarling. Thank you. It is great to see such a um, robust uh, crowd and energetic crowd. Um, I've been a fan of Zocalo since its inception. It's actually my anniversary. Ten years ago, I moderated my first Zocalo panel on climate change. So I'm thrilled to be back. And with this wonderful panel, uh, I'd like to introduce um, Eric Conway. He's a historian of science and technology and the co-author of a book, Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. Next to Eric is Carrie Funk, who's joining us from Washington, D.C. She's the Director of Science and Society Research at the Pew Research Center, and she's authored numerous reports focused on the public trust in science, um, including views ranging from energy and climate to vaccines and gene editing. And last but not least, we have Jeff Guhin from UCLA. He's a sociologist whose research interrogates how moral life works. He studies why people care about what they care about and how moral concern relates to issues of science and religion. So I'm going to jump right in. Um, We're gathered here during this week of the anniversary of one of humankind's greatest and most celebrated scientific achievements. You you really can't escape it this week. (laughs) The Apollo moon landing. To discuss this important issue of whether and why Americans are turning against science. So I'd like to start um, with the panelists by asking, is this a new phenomenon or something that's you know, long been with us? Um, has America's relationship with science been changing over time? And I'd like to ask Eric to start. Okay, so um, I asked for this question because one of the things I like to, people seem to think this idea that Americans are turning against science is kind of new, but there's been social science surveys done for decades, um, and one one study from about 2012 dug into this idea um, of whether this is a new idea. Using the general um, science, uh, social science survey data um, from 1974 to 2012, and this is Gordon Shea's work, and one of the things he found is that, well, back in 1974, the people who were most skeptical of science, the people who had the least trust in it, were actually the people who defined themselves as moderates, political moderates, um, which opened my eyes, because I'm like, huh, that's not what I would have thought. Um, the people who had but and conservatives and liberals, again, self-defined conservatives and liberals, had basically the same. And what's happened since then is that liberals have basically had this, retained the same level of trust in science, moderates have retained the same relative distrust of science, but conservative trust in science has plummeted, just plummeted, so that it's far well below now what kind of the moderate distrust of science is. So as a historian, I'm always interested in why does that happen? Um, and thinking about that has been, been the root of some of my work. Yeah, it is surprising. I think looking at the Apollo mission through this nostalgia um, that we're seeing in the media, you get the sense that it, it, everyone loved Apollo and everyone loves space and everyone loves science in the 60s. Um, as a space historian, tell me what, you, you know, what you've learned about that. It's certainly a lens of nostalgia, um, as much as I love it, and probably everyone in the audience does too. During the actual Apollo years of the 60s, the general public opposed it. Um, The Apollo 11 flight didn't actually reach majority approval, except for about a six-month window um, of that within of that mission. Um, So we've we've rebranded this as great success, but it was not appreciated by most of the public at the time because it was an enormous amount of money. 
Uh, we, we don't think very hard about this anymore, but what Apollo costs in today's dollars is around $200 billion, maybe a little bit more. Um, and that's built on top of another quarter of a trillion, $250 billion spent during the 1950s on the ballistic missile program that undergirded it all. And lots of Americans thought, well, that's an enormous amount of money that we could be spending solving other social problems um, that I wasn't alive for, frankly. There were race riots in the United States throughout the 1960s, especially late in the decade, right around Apollo. And people thought, well, shouldn't we solve these problems on Earth before engaging in this grand techno-spectacle? It's yeah, eye-opening. Um, Carrie, uh, your organization, Pew, has studied science and people's relationship with it for decades now through numerous polls, looking at individual issues and science in general. Can you talk about um, any trends you've seen or surprises that you and your colleagues uh, have unearthed? Yeah, sure. Um, so at the Pew Research Center, we do lots of nationally representative public opinion surveys. Um, I think I just want to step back a little bit in terms of some of the big picture things that we see. You know, number one, um, most Americans say when you ask them that they see positive benefits coming from science on the whole. Um, number two, you often see this idea of continued optimism for scientific and technological developments. You know, the, you know, the space developments might be one of those, but other kinds of things coming up now, people anticipate continued change. Um, but when it comes to trust, um, often we see really more of a mixed pattern. Uh, on the whole, uh, people have at least, you know, a fair amount of confidence in scientists to act in the best interests of the public. Um, but it's usually a minority, certainly less than half, um, that have what you might think of as strong trust, saying they have a great deal of confidence. Uh, a larger group has kind of a fair amount of confidence. So what you might think about that as kind of a soft positive. Um, and er Eric rightly brought up, we have only one kind of survey in the US that looked at trust over time from the 1970s to today. Um, and what's surprising there is that uh, what they find is that confidence in scientists and the leaders of, of the scientific community has been stable over time. Um, and that's striking because we're living in an era of really lower, um, lower trust in institutions, particularly lower trust in government today. Um, and so that's striking, that gives some people um, kind of a, a relief in the scientific community, but stable doesn't necessarily mean high, you know, there's still room to grow. Okay. And when you look at different issues, say, uh, whether to use vaccines, uh, genetically modified food, um, climate change, or the teaching of evolution in schools, are all those lumped together? Do you have people like, I, I'm against science, I'm against all those things? Um, um, yeah, so it's really important to remember science is a vast enterprise, um, and what we do is really study the pieces of science that are connecting with social issues or ethical issues or policy issues. So it's not that surprising then that they sometimes also connect with our political divides and our religious divides and other kinds of divides in society. Um, but one of the key takeaways, we find it again and again, is that you know, the, how people think about these science-related issues, whether it's climate issues or vaccines or so on, um, there's no single group in society that kind of takes what you might think of as a position that's um, against the scientific consensus or skeptical of a scientific um, consensus position. So it varies, right? So we know that climate issues are, you know, highly politically polarized, that's not a big surprise anymore, but not everything's politically polarized, and so that's what's interesting. Okay. Well, we're living in a time um, where we do have a lot of uncertainty in the future. We're looking at global climate change. Um, we've got these powerful tools, you know, people are editing the genomes of human embryos. Um, and as you've said, some of these issues have very strong political, um, religious overtones. Um, is it politics and religion that are um, polarizing people further against science? What you've studied fundamentalist Christians and Muslims and their beliefs, and what I mean is it? Do you see this simp simple, um, you know, religion versus science axis in your work? That's a great question. Um, and by the way, thank you so much, everyone, for coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. I I'm used to teaching UCLA undergraduates. Um, so the fact that this is a full crowd means there's either a final or I'm doing something differently. <laughs> um, 
so uh, yeah, so this is this is a great question, um, and, and it, it sort of dovetails well with what what Carrie was talking about. Um, you know, we we find that there's not really. Uh, Desire from any any Americans that we interview, either either qualitatively or or, quant, or quantitatively via surveys, who don't like science. I mean, science kind of won the game. Science is extremely popular uh, in America, uh, and and that's part of the problem because a historian of science will tell you we don't actually know what science is, right? Uh, if you talk to any sort of sociologist or historian of science and you say there's a thing called science, their head will explode. They will get very upset or because science is so chaotic. They might not even think there's a thing called physics or a thing called biology. They're so diverse. There's so many people doing different kinds of things. Yet I found in my work in two creationist Protestant high schools and two creationist Muslim high schools, people were very comfortable talking about a thing called science. And they were convinced that science proved evolution wrong. Now, I, I don't think that's true, but it's interesting, right? It's interesting that they feel the need to use science to make their case. You could imagine another universe where they said, no, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Quran says, that's it. But they don't. They, so it's interesting, when people hear the word creationist science, the thing that they often hear, secular people hear is creationist, really what you need to hear is science. They think science is necessary, and that's actually super interesting for me as a sociologist. And, and so to, to answer your question, um, you know, we, we really think, those of us who study this stuff, it, it really has to do with identity. And so basically, there's, there's a lot of, of complicated jargon on this, but essentially, if something's important for your identity, you don't want to change your mind. If something's not important for your identity, you'll get new data and you'll think, okay, sure, I guess I'll go there, or I guess I'll do this thing. But if it's relevant for your identity, you're very unwilling to, to, to change, and you'll actually think lots of complicated ways around trying to keep thinking what you wanted to think to maintain that piece of your identity. And so generally, when people dislike multiple elements of science, it's not because they're more or less committed to science, it's because those elements of science together all conflict with different parts of their identity. So it's really about identity stuff and not really about rational thinking or capacity to like to, to understand or deal with science. In fact, tons of studies, and in my own work in a creationist high school, these creationist kids did very well on the AP science test. They knew all the right answers. They just thought they were wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, what, what do you do with that, right? Um, it's a complicated problem. Yeah. You, um, I think this is such an interesting point you raise. Like, what, what do people mean by science? And in a way, it's like this big monolithic, uh, you know, structure, trusted or not trusted. But you've written some really provocative pieces. One I recommend it to everyone is titled, um, A Nation Ruled by Science is a Terrible Idea. Um, can you talk about some of your theses in there? And, um, you know, what do we mean by science? I will say, if, if you want to have a nice day on Twitter, do not pick a fight with Neil deGrasse Tyson. That is... <laughs> That is a poor life choice. <laughs> I got, and I had just started my job, and I got a letter CC'd to the like chancellor of UCLA saying how I shouldn't be allowed to call myself a scientist or a social scientist, which isn't a real scientist anyway. Um, which is kind of true, actually, but that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> the, 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 the point is, the point is, um, science, there's, there's this huge debate that, that goes all the way back, I mean, it goes back further than, than him, but one of the most famous articulators of this is the philosopher David Hume, who talks about this distinction between uh, what is and what ought to be, right? And so there's this big question of can you derive an ought from an is? Can you derive what we should do based on what we can see? And it's a complicated question. There's lots of people with different thoughts on this, but I'm pretty much in the, in the, in the school, which is a substantial school, that you can't, that, or at least it's very hard. And so if we have $1,000 as a city council, hopefully we get some more money, but what are we gonna do with that $1,000? Are we gonna build a library? Are we gonna build a park? Are we gonna give a tax cut? Science can't tell us what to do there, right? Science can uh, help let us know maybe kids have better life outcomes if they're in parks versus libraries. 
science can like, help us know that there will be possibly more jobs if we lower taxes. That's all great. But whether or not the beauty of a park is intrinsically better than the sort of joy of a library is not a scientific question. And that's okay, right? But there's something that we in, in philosophy and sociology of science call scientism, which is not science, but the idea that science and just rational thinking will solve all of our problems. And it, it's frankly um, anti-intellectual. It, it refuses to recognize the importance of philosophy. It refuses to recognize the importance of poetry, of art, uh, of all the sort of, of literature, of all the kinds of ways to think about life that, that science can't give us access to, which does, isn't to say science isn't great, but science has a, has a specific role to play, and it's, it's not all the roles. Yeah. I think it also refuses to see that science can be manipulated sure. to... to um for a lot of reasons, and I, I want to look at uh, climate change in that aspect. Um, it seems to be a clear issue where denialism and paid professional critics were able to just upend and still are upending um, the debate on you know what, what's happening to our, cl our planet and how quickly is it happening. Um, Eric, your, your wonderful book, Merchants of Doubt, um, discusses this, and can you talk a little bit about what you found with your co-author, Naomi Oreskes? Um, and you know, the links between the climate science and the tobacco science, I think, are very powerful. Right, so that book came about because um, somewhat serendipity, I, I, you know, my day job as a NASA historian had led me to look in some, in some records of a Scripps Institution of Oceanography director who was a member of the NASA Advisory Council. Um, and I was just looking to see what his recommendations had been to NASA in the early 1980s as to what their scientific program should be in the future. And I just happened to notice in the finding aid that he had files of correspondence with this organization known as the George C. Marshall Institute. And um, that organization I knew of because it had been engaged in some effort to to cast doubt on ozone depletion science, stratospheric ozone depletion science. And I was like, what is this guy? He's the director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, one of the major climate research centers in the United States, have to do with these guys, these clowns? And the answer is he was one of the founders. Um, that actually was a very toxic moment for me, and afternoon for me, because I could watch and see in his records. It, when, as a historian, sometimes you see 20 years of a person's life go by in an afternoon. Um, and so you could see as kind of the science of climate went one way, he went the other. Um, and so I met Naomi Oreskes a few months after, not, no, actually only a few weeks after that, um, at a meeting in uh, meteorology, history of meteorology meeting in Germany. Um, and she was working on a, a, kind of the flip side almost, another very senior geophysicist by the name of Jay Gordon McDonald, who's very involved, um, he was an early adopter of climate change science and he went to his grave rejecting plate tectonics. Um, just utterly, utterly rejected it. And she was interested in what causes this? You know, why do some people, um, what, what causes some scientists to accept the conclusions of their peers and what causes them to reject other conclusions? Um, and she'll never answer that question because I think it, de it de depends very much on um, individuals' upbringing and motivation and so forth. Um, but. Then we got to talking about this issue for climate and, and one of us, we actually don't, we can't agree anymore on which of us discovered the tobacco connection. She thinks I did, I think she did. We agree to disagree. Um, and then, then we started talking about book because then we have something new because it's the same guys. Um, and our, ultimately our argument, for those of you who haven't read the book, is that what drew them together um, was what we call market fundamentalism. The idea that, that only unregulated free markets can best protect human freedom. Um, and that's kind of where we end that story. Long, complicated story, but. Um, Carrie, can you talk, you mentioned this briefly, um, these political axes, these political um, influences that shape and change um, how people view science. And I wonder, you know, the in the time I've been covering climate change, we've gone from sort of getting both sides to uh, increasing sophistication that one side is is manufactured and I think the general uh, language you hear is that humans are responsible for warming the climate and we're seeing the effects of it in wildfires or glacial melting all kinds of things have polls tracked the um, I don't know the evolution of thinking on climate change or have they been muddied still by political 
thinking on the topic? Yes, there are certainly lots of uh, public opinion surveys about um, climate change, energy, environmental issues, and perhaps no surprise um, to you that there is a very wide political divide on these issues. So what you see are that Republicans and Democrats in particular just take totally different positions. Um, so including things like the likelihood of effects on, on wildlife, on um, other kinds of things. So pretty much any, any, any question that you ask related to climate, energy, environment issues, you tend to see this kind of divide. And we've seen a divide like this for a long time. But one thing you should keep in mind is that this is not the only political divide in society. Remember that we are actually living in an era of political polarization. So what we saw around uh, somewhere between, uh, particularly around 2004, I think you started to see it, where you really saw the divisions in society across a whole range of social and political issues just widened up. Um, and so that's what they call that political polarization. The, the typical Democrat, the issue positions of the typical Democrat grew further apart from the issue positions of the typical Republican. And so we're living in an era that we all experience as more polarized. And as you know, it's not just ideological positions that separate us. Um, there's this kind of sense of animosity as well that, that goes along with this. And then in the vaccine issue, do you see that liberals are less likely to vaccinate? Um, we, we don't. I mean, so beliefs about childhood vaccines, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, um, those are not associated with politics. Um, so that's one of the, you know, that's, that's one of the examples. You can, I should, if we're going to go into caveats today, um, you know, you can find political divides, particularly if you raise more policy-oriented issues, because at the end of the day, there is a kind of different policy orientation uh, view about the role of government that drives a lot of these political divisions. So if you're framing something in terms of, you know, should, should vaccines be required or not, you know, that kind, of, that kind of raises the notion of government involvement. So then you're more likely to see a political divide over that. But something like, you know, are vaccines safe? How effective are they? What are the risks and benefits? You do not see any political divide. Do either of you have anything to weigh? I think it's, you know, we've seen these huge measles outbreaks here in California. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, you know, it seems to me that people are putting others at risk, babies, people with immune disorders. It, it's, it's very, you know, the, the refusal to vaccinate remains a very strong um, opinion among some. Is there religious reasons that you, I don't know if you've studied it particularly, but or if it's come up in your research? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's, um, I mean, there are various religious communities that are, that are more opposed to uh, to vaccination. Um, you know, I, I would say that um, this is not. I mean, we were talking about the 1970s, but this is actually a very old story. Uh, I'm gonna. This is a bit of a nerd joke, but I'm gonna do. Uh, one of the the most stereotypical trite things an academic can do in a uh, panel and cite Tocqueville. But uh, some Tocqueville, some Tocqueville recognition there. That's nice. But like this goes back to Tocqueville, and and you know there's this there's this real um, suspicion of authority in, in the United States, and so you know one of one of the things that sort of led to the Second Great Awakening um, in American religious history, which is really the kind of um, most obvious historical moment that led to the kinds of of, of creationist evangelicals I'm, I'm I study in in, in this book. Um, the Second Great Awakening came out of a suspicion of, of ministers, right? Saying, who are these ministers to tell me how to read the Bible? Who are these elite East Coasters to tell me how to read the Bible? I can just read the Bible fine on my own. I don't need anyone else to tell me how to do it. But, you know, what, uh, what historians point out is that this was not just about ministers. It was also about lawyers. It was about government officials. It was certainly about medical doctors. And so there was a general suspicion of elites and this real sense that, like, who, you think you're better than me? I mean, and so this is, this is, this is what Tocqueville described when he talked about democracy in America, is that democracy in America has this kind of underbelly to it where there's, a, there's a, the obsession with equality has this 
really lovely effect, but it also has this dangerous effect in that it insists on a kind of intellectual equality, such that expertise is suspicious, right? Who are you to tell me the vaccines aren't true? I know what's good for my baby, right? Like that's not just a religious thing. That's a very old American sensibility um, that, you know, and in some ways obviously predates Tocqueville in the Jacksonian era, but was, was very important in the early 1800s. Well, I think this issue of authority is very important. I, um, I know I've seen polls where trusted professionals, you know, firefighters are at the pinnacle, but scientists are not much below them. So on one hand, they're thrust, trusted, I guess, as a good authority. Um, I think about a, a study I heard about where third grade teachers were told to ask their students to draw a scientist, and they were all like men in white coats, you know, like little stick figure Einsteins with crazy hair. You know, they weren't women. Um, so there is this view of like the, you know, Charles Darwin, we, we see him older. You know, he had his ideas when he was like 23. Um, but it's this idea of this sort of white, gray, mm -hmm. bearded, mm -hmm. authoritative, uh, mm -hmm. But so it seems like a conflict then because we're, we're a society that doesn't want authority, doesn't want to be told what to do, yet we look up and respect and admire. We love being told what to do if it tells us what we want to do anyway. So that's awesome. Then we can look, this authority is telling me I'm right. Look, isn't this authority great? So yeah, we don't like, this is in my, in my field work, no one dislikes science, but man, they have a strong opinion about scientists. They'd be like, these evolutionists, they just, you know, they're so secular, they want to push their secular philosophy on us. And, and that's, that's true about GMOs. I mean, that's true about all sorts of things where the scientific consensus tends to be pretty strong. But people say, people will sort of look and say, okay, but you know what? This scientist here, the science in general is fine, scientists in general are fine. Because look, science works. We, uh, I would rather have an appendectomy from a medical doctor than you know, someone going around in a covered wagon who's also a barber, right? Like, <laughs> as a rule, that seems like a safe bet to me. And so I, I, I think that people generally have a sense that they like electricity, they, they, they like their bridges, can carry a certain amount of weight and seem to work in earthquakes. You know, like most of science seems pretty productive and so it, the, the, the proof's in the pudding. But there's these few things that trigger identity that make people think they're not able to live the way they want to live, and it makes them really mad, right. right? So scientists have really taken a lot of criticism for kind of hiding in their ivory towers and doing their work and keeping their head down and not, you know, speaking in jargon and not engaging with the public. And then on the other hand, you have these provocateurs, like your friend Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Dawkins. Um, oh, man. Who are just taking on the creationists and, you know, um, are they helping are they, or though? hurting? I, that's a, or, or just self -guess? I think they're just causing more problems than it's worth, but that's a whole separate yeah. conversation. So you think but so? You think they're... They're a pain in... They, they are not productive. Um, I will change what I was about to say. No, it's, 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 it's absolutely useless Be for a few reasons. One, they're creating needless enemies with all religious people. They're conflating religious people with, um, with creationism, which need not be the case. Um, I think they misunderstand creationism. They're clearly not reading uh, studies of creationism, uh, which, which indicate that creationism is, is not just ignorance, which is generally how they frame it. Um, but primarily, it's, it's, it's polemical in a way that I don't think needs to be polemical. And like I said, especially for someone like Dawkins, I think it's actually anti-intellectual. Um, I think there's a, there's a real incapacity to recognize the, um, the specific space that science contributes to in the good society, which is a very important and, 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 a, and a very clear space that's very much under threat in our society now. So science needs, needs defenders, needs articulate defenders, but it needs defenders who aren't like weirdly hating on philosophy. I mean, there's just this strange anti-intellectualism um, that's actually creepy and kind of dystopian, this idea that we can create a rational order that will just entirely be based on science. And you know, we've seen that movie before and it's creepy. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just, I'm not a fan. So, yeah, there's a lot of movies. Um, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the issue of GMOs and food science um, and maybe use this as a way to talk about the role the media plays in altering people's views towards science. Um, 
I know that, you know, and I'm a practitioner of journalism, and I get so tired of, in food science, sort of the study of the day, like, coffee's good for you, it's bad for you, vitamin D causes cancer, no, it's like, we'll save your bones, you know, it's always, um, it's so episodic, and out of context, and I feel like it's just made people roll their eyes about, um, and you know, there's, 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 it's been in the news, there's been a lot of fraud in food science studies, but there's also some really good people working in it. Um, and then GMOs, um, there's so much kind of irrational thinking and things on both sides that seem crazy to me. Um, do you see this, Carrie, in your polling? Like, is this an emotional issue because, you know, food is something we put in our bodies, or is this... Is this political? Um, does the media like muddy the waters? Um, yeah, are we, well, these are all good questions. We hear it a lot. We hear a lot of concern, particularly in terms of uh, food science studies. As you said, we, we tend to be, if we ask people, they're aware that they're hearing conflicting studies, that you know, one day coffee is safe, the other day bacon's safe, and then all of a sudden we reverse course. So there's a lot of concern in the scientific community about whether or not that actually might undermine people's confidence in science or certainly in food science. Um, you know, we, we try to get at that. I, I would say what we've asked people, what it seems like is that um, on the whole, it doesn't seem to shake people's confidence. But there is a, a kind of difference in that some people who don't know as much about science are a little more likely to be confused. So we ask them, like, you know, do you think you generally understand what's healthy to eat and what's not? And then we see those people do stand out more than those who follow along more. So there's a possibility that it can be a little more confusing. Um, but in general, I just want to circle back because in these examples, vaccines, GM foods, um, they're both good examples to remind us that there's complicated ways in which we form attitudes and beliefs. And so there's often an assumption um, that if we could just inform you more, you would all of a sudden hold a particular belief. And it, it just doesn't work that way. If you examine your own beliefs, you'll know that it, it's not just based on information. Usually, you know, there's emotions, there's multiple, di there, there could be multiple kinds of information that come into your thoughts. So, um, so sci the scientists typically just want to tell you what to think at the end of the day by saying, why don't you just think like me? Mm -hmm. And that is never going to work. It's hard for me to imagine information that would make me stop drinking coffee, just to be clear. You're here. Yeah. So you listen to the studies that help you do what you want to do anyway. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you're using science in the proper way. <laughs> okay. All right. Coffee's my identity, man. <laughs> um, and this issue of, you know, CRISPR is in the news a lot and editing genomes of, you know, sometimes it sounds amazing, like, let's edit these mosquitoes so they can never give anyone malaria again, or, you know, you know I want to, let's edit this baby so it's taller and smarter, um, and so there's this big range. You know, science keeps moving along and the things we can do are amazing. I mean, they're, at UC Davis, they're growing, um, trying to grow human kidneys in pigs. And on one hand, you're like, oh my God, that's so crazy. And on the other hand, if you're undergoing dialysis, you're like, hurry up, you know, hurry up. Um, you know, they're, they're starting to think about editing living genomes of, you know, people with sickle cell, which again, is scary, but could be amazing and relieve a lot of suffering. Um, are we seeing creep in how people think about, are we accepting more and more things as science progresses or are they, and anyone can really take this, or are there just sort of these religious like, no, you will not, you know, use fetal tissue for anything. Um, or yeah, you will if it will help your own child. Um, I mean, so you're right. These are, these are the big issues right now in terms of emerging science, um, particularly in terms of gene editing and its applications, both for humans, animals, and, and uh, to some degree crops. So, you know, some of these, what we find again and again is that the context matters. Uh, maybe we don't know a lot about exactly how you splice a gene, but we know that we have opinions about what you would do with it and what the purpose is. And so people's opinions tend to vary quite a lot. Um, so therapy, uh, 
tends to see strong support. Um, but other other ideas are for things, as you mentioned, you know, maybe more what used to be called um, designer babies, the idea that you would do things that some people think are trivial. Um, and then, then you see a lot more resistance. Uh, we, do, we saw the same thing in terms of animal genetic engineering. The purpose matters a lot. Um, the most, we asked something about uh, one thing that's commercially available, which is the idea of glowfish. Um, and saw widespread kind of um, opposition. This, this was really taking technology too far because they just didn't see the human value. They didn't see the, the animal value. Um, so people saw that as a context that they didn't, they didn't get behind for that reason. But if you ask something um, more, like, uh, use, more like developing um, animal cells for, for human organs, um, for transplant into humans, then they understood that value and you saw much more support. If I may quote the greatest scientist of our time, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park, uh, you spent so much time worrying about if you could do something, you didn't think if you should, uh, or something like that. I can't remember exactly. It was a long time ago. But the point is, this is again scientism, right? Like this idea that science can do lots of cool stuff, but it, whether or not it should is actually not a scientific question. It's a philosophical and ethical question. Um, now, religion is one place to go for, for a source for that, those ethics, but of course, it's not the only source. There are lots of amazing secular ethicists who are thinking really hard questions in bioethics, but also in climate change ethics. There's these fascinating philosophical questions right now in philosophy departments about how much lives today matter versus lives a thousand years from now. How obligated are you to the lives of the world today versus the lives in the world a thousand years from now? That's a hard ethical question. Science can't really give us answers to that. It can tell us what might happen a thousand years from now with better or worse capacity, but, but it can't tell us which lives are more valuable, either, either in this world or, or a thousand years from now. And, and so this is one of those things where we do need to push, uh, push scientists and push the state to regulate science or not regulate science, it's a case-by-case -case basis, to think hard questions about these ethical issues before they show up, because uh, they're gonna keep coming. And it, it's, I think too often we think of, uh, of ethics and science about bioethics, right? Especially genetic engineering, um, genetic engineering of humans, but, but of, 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 of animals and plants too. Uh, and that's important, but, but you know, there's a lot of science with potential for, for great ethical harm um, and great ethical benefit. And so it's important for us to think about that. Yeah, in terms of climate, this idea that of um, valuing life is not even close to new. Economists do it, and this is, so I refer to it as co economism instead of scientism, because they have come up with a, an idea known as the social discount rate to um, use in calculations of the future value of human life. Right. And setting that number is crucial to evaluating the economic costs of climate change because climate change will go on for centuries and we need to know, you know, what is the value of our great-grandchildren if we want to assess the damage that we are doing to them. Okay, and that, this is part of that hot, furious field of, of climate economics slash climate philosophy because there are certain people who think that the, so the discount rate should be zero, that every life is worth the same as every other life and lots of people like to believe that, but an economist would tell you that's not the way we act. The way we actually act is that we assign less value to our children than to ourselves. We assign less value to our grandchildren than our children, and so on. That's what an economist would say, and they have data to back it up. And as a historian, I'm like, huh, that's a really interesting philosophical proposition to take. As a sociologist, I would say the same thing. I mean, it's, it's obvious. We value our, our family more than our fellow citizens. We value our fellow citizens more than refugees in our camps. We value uh, refugees in our camps more than the people who didn't manage to make it to the camps. I mean, we, we clearly don't value all humans equally. And that's, that's a complicated philosophical problem that has vexed religions and non-religious for, for millennia. Uh, and we're not going to, we're not, maybe we'll solve it tonight, uh, but um, probably not. Uh, but, the, but the point is, again, uh, science gives us great data with which we can um, better understand how to frame those questions and what we need to ask those questions about. It doesn't give us the answers to those questions. 
Yeah, we're facing so many crises, you know, from migration to climate. Um, Eric, what does your work show? What, what do people need um, within science and in other areas to, um, to make progress, to make the right decisions? Um, I don't, you know, in a way, we're in the midst of this sort of fighting about climate change, but great strides were made at tobacco. Um, is it knowledge? Is it information? Is it more? I'm actually the worst person to ask that question of, because as a historian, my job is kind of to help people understand the world they're in. I, I, I struggled with the question of how do I fix this? Um, and so the first part of my answer is, uh, information goes so far. Lots of people were astonished at what Naomi and I found. Um, I doubt we changed too many minds, because by and large, we're only going to be read by people who are, may have been, who are already sympathetic to, this, to, to book learning anyway, because it's a book and it's you know, 200 and something pages long and it's sometimes kind of dense. Um, and then there are all these other philosophical questions and religious questions that are really not my specialty as a historian of science. Um, and so sometimes I'm encouraged by people I meet and sometimes I'm just in terrible despair about it. But I wish I knew how to, our, our answer to this question, Merchants of Doubt, because it was a more popular book and you have to satisfy your editors that you've addressed this question, um, <laughs> was, um, was an appeal to authority um, in this sense, it's you know using the best you know scientific information as reflected in uh, National Academy of Sciences reports, um, and and it was a struggle for us because we ourselves know as historians they ain't always right either. Um, radiation is a big big area in which they were deliberately misleading the public for a couple of decades with those studies. So it was hard for us to make that conclusion, but at the same time, we're, we have to live in a world in which you know, journalists get a day to write an article and sometimes less than that. You need to be able to send them to some kind of reliable source of information. Um, and that's the best answer we could give, but it's not a complete answer. It's not a full answer, and I wish I knew a better answer than that. Do you want to weigh in, Jeff, on what you think society needs? Let me tell you what society needs. <laughs> Buckle in, folks. Uh, no, so I, I a new president, um, but I, I, I would say, I mean, it, it, how should we relate to science, right? I, I, um, you know, ideally we relate to science like, like we should learn in, in a good science class, which is, um, you know, a simultaneous capacity for, for amazement, curiosity, and suspicion, right? That we, um, we, we, we stay curious, we stay amazed and excited, but we're also second-guessing. We're also thinking, why is that right, right? I mean, ideally, science is, um, is deeply democratic, right? This is when, when John Dewey was sort of obsessed with science and evolution, and he's, he's one of my intellectual heroes, you know? The whole point is that we're always, we're always rethinking our habits. We're always sort of evaluating our habits and, and trying to push them up against things that challenge them so we can rethink how we're living. And, and we're never doing that individually. We're always doing that as a group. And so really thinking of science not as this kind of um, uh, you know, thing in, in labs uh, or, or done by professors that's, that's far away from us, but as something that all of us have access to, which is really just thinking hard about the world. There's this great philosopher of science named Susan Hack, and she tries to sort of work out what the definition of science is, which no philosopher of science, few even attempt to do anymore, because it's so, again, so complicated. But she says, you know, at its most basic level, it's rational thinking, right? It's, it's, it's thinking that is capable of being corrected. And, and so, you know, really sort of, I think, being open to, uh, to correcting others and to ourselves being corrected is, um, I think, a place to start. I think that's what keeps me up at night is how polarized we are and mm -hmm. how many echo chambers they are and it's all you know, enabled by the media and the internet. Um, Carrie, do you, I mean, you know, polling is looking at what's happening now, but do you have any thoughts on where we're headed? I mean, are we headed to more division and less agreement on topics? Mm -hmm. um, or will crises kind of force us to maybe come together? I mean, we're really at a polarized time. 
um, and I don't know if it, that will just increase. Right. Well, I'm, I was going to pick up on just a, maybe a basic point about how much our information environment has changed because that makes it both easier and more difficult. So let's just talk about how we are integrating the world of social media as our main channel of information. And what that means for us is that on the one hand, we have access to actually a much wider array of sources because people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, an individual, a well-known prominent individual, has millions of followers on a public page um, like Facebook. Uh, and many other people, anyone who wants to build an audience now has an avenue to reach really large audiences. So when you look at those public pages and you try to see, well, who's out there? Some of them are what we call traditional legacy media outlets and many others are not. Mm -hmm. And so what that means, some of them are, you know, people that you might think of as kind of alternative sources or even pseudoscience sources. Mm -hmm. So the, the range of information out there is much wider. On the other hand, we are not as beholden as we were many decades ago to somebody else's schedule, to somebody else feeding whatever they wanted. We have more control, more ability to curate the information that we want to pay attention to than we ever did before. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that that can actually both inf uh, kind of reinforce information and possibly reinforce misinformation about science at the same time. So it's just a much more complex world. Terrific. Um, well, I think we've come to time to um, open this up, open the discussion up to our audience. So we're hoping to hear lots of great questions. Before we start that, could I get one round of applause for this great panel? Hi, my name is George Magdaleno. I have a question. I'm really surprised none of you mentioned artificial intelligence. And when you mentioned the human discount theory, I know there are AI models out there that have the human discount theory built in, you know, for, you know, return on investment and shareholder value, and they don't have the Jeff Goldblum maxim of, should we do it, can we do it? So what your ideas are on AI? Oh, well, um, since I brought up the social discount rate, um, I hate to say this, but I don't know much about it. Um, I can't, I, it's impossible for me for, to know everything. Um, I off, and that, that's, that's the first problem. No, I'm a historian. I am not a scientist. My wife's a scientist. Um, and I guess the second thing I'd say is that um, I'm often astonished at how dumb AI is. Um, and so I, there's a kind of a level of fear that to some degree been built up in the public, I think, about AI. And I think that my major fear is that it's too dumb. Um, but I don't know about the models that are, have uh, the, the social discount rate built into them um, other than I hope I, I hope they didn't use Bill Norhouse's version of that social discount rate, but because that's that basically makes our grandkids worthless. Um, but that is what it is. So I, I just I, I could babble on, but I'm not going to because I, I just don't know enough about AI to answer. I, I will say that Silicon Valley can, can sometimes create a certain kind of billionaire who thinks because I have a lot of money, I must be good at everything. Um, which isn't necessarily true. And so, I mean, when I talk to my friends who are neurologists, they're like, look, we're looking at worms with like 40 neurons. We have no idea how the heck they work together. And there are these folks that think we're gonna download Johnny Depp's brain in like three years, and, right? And so, there's, which isn't to say, you know, there's all these models of how intellectual life works and, you know, if we keep working at a certain rate, maybe, you know, 400 years from now, we will be able to download whoever's brain, right? Who knows what the future will be? But um, if you actually look at people who study uh, the intelligence as we understand it in extremely simple animals, um, they are extremely suspicious of the, the sort of high hopes of, of AI in Silicon Valley. My question about the importance of the science, why the science uh, didn't or couldn't get uh, enough importance in American popular culture or Hollywood or, you know? Uh, so I think the question is, um, why doesn't science get more um, support in American popular culture? Um, and actually, I guess I have to put back, push back on that because I think there's actually an enormous amount of science in popular culture now. Um, where, it's, where it's died is from the newspapers, unfortunately, but now that 
you know, the three big networks and their, their, their comedy, uh, what are those, ha those uh, comedy shows that ran a half hour used to be called? Sitcoms. Sitcoms has basically been destroyed by internet streaming and so forth. There's actually a lot more content um, than there ever used to be before. Um, and so really it's reporting on science that's gone, that's right. gone downhill, but um, I think there's actually more public interest. It just is an interest that doesn't translate into journalism. I, I think a more interesting question is why is science so terrible? in popular media. So for example, there's something uh, that my friends who are criminologists find called the NCIS effect, which is that juries are like, well, why couldn't you just do the habadagabadagabada and like automatically prove the Jotawa with the body? And they're like, yeah, that's not possible, right? And so there's all these presentations of science uh, in the media that are kind of grossly inflated, that are oversimplistic, whatever. But they love science, it's just not accurate or real science. Opal Hetherington, and um, uh, it was discussed uh, the divide between Republicans and Democrats regarding climate change. And I was wondering if any of you could speak to why um, it seems that the conservative part, like more conservative beliefs, um, don't support the idea of climate change. I guess that's all for me. <laughs> um, so the answer to that has, is tied fun fundamentally and deeply into the idea that the state shouldn't regulate business. It comes out of 19th century neoclassical economics that, that markets should be free and unregulated. And businessmen have deliberately sold this to the public through a wide variety of foundations from the, since the 1970s. I'm working in a book right now and that pushes that border back into the 1930s. Um, but because solving the climate problem means state intervention into energy markets at least, and probably most markets, energy, agriculture, uh, transportation, and so forth, they oppose, business people who oppose business regulation oppose environmental regulation because that is business regulation, and therefore they don't want climate change to be addressed. They don't like the solutions, so then they misrepresent the science, so that we never even have the debate about the solutions. So when I give climate talks, I try to talk to people about solving the problem and not about this conflict over the science because it's a fake conflict. It's invented by industry. Um, and the debate should have moved on 30 years ago onto what should we do about it. Not just what can we do about it. There's all kinds of technological things we can do about it. But this brings us back to um, Jeff's point that this is actually also a set of philosophical and social problems. Um, and, and it should be addressed on those terms. But that's how it all came about. Uh, my name is Christina Lia Scudero. Um, so I'm someone that went to a, a private Christian school where we would skip the chapters on evolution. And uh, I decided to major in biology and that's the first time I discovered evolution. And all the evidence made sense to me and so I accepted it. And not only did it make sense to me, I wanted to share it with my father who's a minister because I was so mind blown. And uh, it ended up just creating a, a bad rift in our relationship. And so recently, um, a young person came to me with advice because she discovered all the evidence for human evolution and she wants to share it with her father who's a, a religious creationist. Um, and so I would be interested in hearing from any of you, um, what is your take on that? Like when you're, you're faced with this evidence you had never been taught before and you want to share it, but is our responsibility to open other people's minds? And is it really an opening of their minds if I don't know, it's uh, an interesting conundrum. <laughs> Christina, thanks so much for sharing your story and I'm, I'm sorry you had trouble with your father. I hope that relationship improves. Um, I, you know, it, it's hard for me to answer that question because as an ethnographer, I, I take it, when I'm in, invited to these communities, I take really seriously my obligation not to harm them and not to, uh, and to honor the trust they've given me by welcoming, to their welcoming me into their communities. And so, um, so it's not my job to go in and change their minds. It's my job to understand how they think and, and, and then to write about it. Um, but uh, in terms of my relationship with, with, my, with my family, um, you know, um, my family's Catholic and we, my mom's brother converted to evangelical Christianity. So my, my family's uh, what's, what's called theistic evolutionist. They believe that God guided evolution. Um, but my uncle is now a creationist. He doesn't believe in evolution. So as a typical sort of, you know, young 20 something who thought I was smarter than everyone, I remember talking to my uncle Paul and being like, yeah, well, blah, 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 or whatever, right? And then, I and he's kind of an arrogant guy too, and so he, we kind of went back and forth. And then I remember at one point I sort of stopped 
and I said, I just tried to understand his world from his perspective, right? And I said, okay, so just help me understand, like, if, if the flood happened so recently, how did all the animals get to where they are in the world? Like, how did that even work? And he pauses, and he goes, you know, I've thought a lot about that. And he sort of told me this huge story, and I, I don't think it's an accurate story, but, but it's, he clearly is a smart guy who thought a lot about this, right? And, and, I, and it, that's kind of when I decided I wanted to be an ethnographer, because I wanted to understand how people think instead of just sort of judging them beforehand, right? And my friends and I who are ethnographers think a lot about this, because that's terrible public policy, right? Like, we, we, ultimately, we need to make hard decisions about who's right and who's wrong. And so ethnographers, the ethnographer hat I wear is not the same hat I wear when I'm doing politics, right? When I do politics, I have to make harder moral judgments. Um, and sometimes that's an uneasy fit. Often, it's an uneasy fit. But, but I would say that, um, and I, I certainly, it's, it, you know, I, I feel very uncomfortable telling, telling you or anyone how to, how to deal with your family. Um, but I'll say in the experience of my own family, it, it's trying to navigate between um, moments in which the better thing is to understand and moments in which the better thing is to actually make judgments and to say, I think what you're doing is wrong. And for me, evolution, believing in evolution, I just don't think um, is morally wrong. And so if I'm gonna fight with my conservative Christian family, it's gonna be much more about gay marriage, right? And I'm gonna say that's a fight that I think actually has real stakes in the world that causes people pain. And I don't think you not believing in evolution causes anyone any real pain. If you were a biology teacher, maybe, but if, if, if you're just my uncle, I'm not worried about it, right? And, and so, and so that's, that's, for me, that's where I go. I, and I'm not saying that's a universal rule, but that's, that's how I do it. Hello, my name is Daniel Caballero. I'm a museum educator, and I have conversations with folks um, all times. One of my favorite is like talking to someone with that, um, with, you know, beliefs and this kind of, perhaps a curious uh, toe, dipping a toe into, um, you know, actually coming to a museum, seeing some of the things that we mm -hmm. do here mm -hmm. every day. And it's important for me in those conversations, in my experience, never to just spit facts at them and, sure. and, and to try to connect with them as, much, as best as I can. Um, and found those are some of the most worthwhile things. Uh, but I want, usually when I, when I talk to people, I, like, when it comes to things like climate change, when it comes to things like, uh, uh, yeah, I can, you know, is how much is fear the overarching kind of emotion that kind of drives some of this uh, denial in, in, in science? How much, is, how much is fear driving? Yeah, like as an emotion when it comes, especially, yeah. Um, I don't know in terms of quantifying that, but it's a good point that emotions are part of our, they're part of the process, right? They're part of how we form attitudes. They're part of our underlying beliefs. Um, so I haven't heard a lot of people talk about fear per se. You mean about the threat of climate change? Well, yeah. climate change, but also, especially when you were talking about um, autism in terms of vaccines, mm. like how much is, you know, I gotcha. fear. Okay, yeah, I gotcha. Um, I mean, so again, you know, it's a great example in terms of um, thinking about vaccines that there's multiple... There's multiple ways people come at it. Um, in terms of our research, you know, one of the one of the groups we found that had the most concerns are people who have young children, um, who are there on the front lines facing those decisions about vaccination, not just for the MMR, but for lots of other other inoculations. So that they um, that that could be part of it. Um, that they're concerned about weighing those risks and benefits for their their individual child as well. So on climate, I'm going to give a little bit of a different answer. Um, I told you before a story about kind of how elite professional scientists came to help cast doubt on science. Um, but there's another angle to this, and that is fear of change, um, as well as the emotional rejection of the idea that we all cause this problem just by going about our daily lives. Um, and I guess that really the person who pointed this out best to me was a very right-wing Republican who was one of the few that actually came to accept climate change. Uh, but at the end of the Merchants of Doubt version, the documentary version, he talks about this, this basic problem that nobody wants to get up in the morning and look in the mirror and go, God, am I the one doing this? And the answer is we all are. 
we don't want to accept that, and we also don't want to accept that we have to change fundamental elements of our lives if we want to help solve that problem. Hey, I'm Robbie Goldman. Uh, thank you for the panel tonight. Um, I'm a geoscientist, a PhD student who's been involved with a lot of uh, science communication outreach, both to policymakers and to the general public. Um, I was kind of curious from like a sociological and historic uh, perspective, um, the amount of, um, I guess, science advocacy that's come out of uh, recent uh, political events. Um, what kind of role do you see that playing and the impact that, would, that could have on um, future um, perceptions of science and science-based policy uh, compared with um, your expertise and um, how things like this have played out in the past? I mean, it's a really hard question. Um, and it, it remains har hard to figure out. There, there is some concern that it'll actually even further politicize science and drive conservatives further away. Um, I think that cake's already baked, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not super, I'm not worried about that, but we'll have to see what the data says, you know? So it's, it is kind of an empirical question. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the politicization, the idea that science is politicized is, um, it's always, I mean, the philosopher of science, Robert Merton, wrote about this in 1942, right? Like, this is not like a new thing, but there's this kind of convenient myth that scientists are these kind of neutral arbiters, right? But it's kind of a useful myth in some ways. And so, um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Before we close, thank you to the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Thank you to C-SPAN for being here. And finally, a big round of applause for our panelists tonight. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you all for coming.